Recovery Elevator, episode 392. If you are trying to get sober, I always say giving back is the best way to start that process. Uh, like this? Yeah, that should work. Mix down. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Yo, yo. Mix down. Three, four. Yo, yo. Wiki, wiki. Three, Mix four. down. There we go. Seven, eight. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. Guys in the house. <laughs> I love it. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. There we go. Three, four. Wiki, wiki. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I am so excited to be here with you today. On today's episode, we have Megan. She's 34 years old from Orlando, Florida, and took her last drink on June 22nd, 2021. Great job, Megan. Listeners, I want to thank Groovy. Groovy is based out of Denver, Colorado, and they make non-alcoholic craft beer and wine. Their mission is all about inclusion. Sobriety is not meant to be something that excludes you from life. On the contrary, sobriety allows you to participate in life, and what better way to do that than with a delicious beverage in hand? Groovy has been sponsoring RE for three years, and one of the founders was interviewed for the Recovery Elevator podcast on episode 288. So listen to that interview. They are a great group of people. There's a link in the show notes, www.getgroovy.com. Thank you, Liz. And now let's hear from another fantastic sponsor, Soberlink. Each and every person in the fight against alcohol addiction has their own reason for recovery. Maybe it's your family that's motivating you. Maybe it's your friends. Or maybe you're just finally doing this for yourself. Whatever your reason for recovery is, we're all in this together. At Recovery Elevator, our mission includes having fun in sobriety and building connections with like-minded individuals. That's why we've partnered with Soberlink to expand and strengthen our community even further, as Soberlink is a remote alcohol monitoring technology created to help provide accountability for people in recovery. The system includes a high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition that allows you to share your sobriety in real time with loved ones who can offer support in the event of a slip-up or relapse. Soberlink has helped hundreds of thousands of people document proof of sobriety in real time to help build trust and to foster peace of mind. Soberlink is currently building a strong community of people in recovery. Get inspired and inspire others today by joining the community at www.soberlink.com forward slash recovery dash elevator. I want to say thank you to all our Cafe Ari chat hosts. You all do an amazing job. Okay, listeners, let's get started. Many of you have reached the conclusion that alcohol is shit and needs to go. Many listeners have already done so and listen to this podcast regularly to reinforce that decision. So this intro is more for those who are about to say goodbye and what they can expect in seven days without alcohol. All right, so let's cover one week without alcohol, which is a great starting point into an alcohol-free life. Stacking days, which is a day here and a couple days there, is fantastic, but your body and mind will respond faster to continuous sobriety. And I think a week away from alcohol is probably the most doable chunk of time. And I know for me, even 30 days was like, oh shit, that's a long time. So seven days alcohol-free. And here's a tip, even if that's daunting, tell yourself you can drink on the eighth day. It's not forever. 
And this AF fast is more for the problematic drinking who has maybe one to two nights of interrupted sleep. And apart from the annoying hangover, they don't experience serious withdrawal symptoms. Now, hard disclaimer here, please don't quit cold turkey if you've been drinking all day for a long time. You want to seek medical attention at a detox facility. Alcohol is the most dangerous drug in the world to detox from. But once you're detoxed, then this seven-day timeline should apply to you as well. All right, let's do this. Day one. What's up, brain fog and hangover? The human body is an amazing machine. Now, the main component of a hangover is your body has already adapted and accepted alcohol. And the hangover is your body saying, yo, I need alcohol to function properly. That's why, in my opinion, the hair of the dog was the best remedy for a hangover. But not today, listeners. It's not happening. All right, day one. I'm not going to bullshit you. This day isn't fun. It might suck. Let it suck. So drink water. Drink more water and then more. Eat at least one full healthy meal. Your body is detoxing today in a major way. Anxiety is a part of this. Embrace the process. Remember the pain. Try your best to get some exercise today as this is going to help with sleep. Speaking of sleep, listeners, it won't be great and night sweats are expected. Let's talk cravings. Yes, you will have them and ice cream is your friend. Oof, day one in the books. What's up day two? So you're probably tired today since your body at first doesn't like sleeping without alcohol. Don't worry, this will change. There's probably some anxiety still, but this is the body craving the chemical ethanol. Day two is most likely the day when the body stops petitioning for alcohol and begins the physical healing process. Cells in the esophagus and stomach begin to repair themselves. In addition, blood flow to the small and large intestines begins to increase. Again, day two is another day of detox. Keep drinking water and lots of it. You may experience the sweats. Don't worry, this is the body's way of purging. Brain fog? Yep, you still got it. You've got about 85 billion neurons in your brain, and most of them are used to functioning with alcohol. So patience, my friend. Cravings? Yes, you have them. And again, ice cream is your friend. So a significant part of cravings is for sugar and not alcohol. And we're going to worry about sugar later. Let's talk sleep on day two. Well, do your best. Day three. You probably slept a little better last night and welcome back appetite. Eat a full breakfast and here's why. Alcohol, with the liver and digestive system, it jumps the cue. As in the body says, all hands on deck, fire on board when alcohol is present and the liver processes the alcohol first. This is around the time on day three when the liver begins processing the normal cue of toxins in the body. Sure, you'll feel fatigue without a doubt, but this is because systems are coming back online and there may be some die-off from toxins that have been in the queue for a long time. All of this takes energy to begin the process. Towards the end of day three is when you should feel a bit more energy and dopamine, not cued by alcohol, should be released, although in small amounts. Let's talk craving on day three. Yes, you still got them and ice cream is your friend. Speaking of ice cream, here at RE, we love Jenny's ice cream and What's Up Genuine Ice Cream based out of Bozeman, Montana. All right, day four. Congratulations. The worst of it, the first 72 hours are over and now begins the true healing. The first couple days was the body hoping for alcohol. Now it's given up that search and will begin digesting food and absorbing nutrients. Make sure, again, you drink a ton of water. Yes, you might feel lost, and anxiety is totally normal, 
but there should be a small glimmer of hope, as in, my goodness, we are on day four without alcohol. We can do this. This achievement alone is something you should be damn proud of, and it should make you feel good. The brain is now using brain fuel such as amino acids and healthier sources of glucose, but you're definitely not going to be doing long-form calculus. Cravings on day four, you're probably still going to have them, and ice cream, yep, is still your friend. Sleep, put on your blanket sleeper, as in tonight, you should be able to get some rest. You earned it. Let's talk day five. What just happened? Did I wake up before my alarm clock? You may even want to get out of bed. You should feel the most rejuvenated after a night's rest than you felt in a long time. Your body is hungry. Yes, your body is still craving sugar and ice cream. Go for it. But your body is hungry for healthy calories. Don't worry about eating too much. Make sure it's healthy, hearty, and give your body what it needs. This is the day where your brain should start to come back online. Now there are two sides to this. The thinking mind will be going crazy, but some cognition does return. Day five is when your confidence begins to build. Mentally, you're cleaner. Things are firing faster in your body. Messages from the brain reach the nervous system faster. The amygdala, the fear center of the brain, starts to chill out a bit. Now anxiety may still be present. Don't worry about the anxiety. Day five is when basic coherence in the body and mind resumes. This means you're digesting food. The nervous system goes from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic or fight or flight to restoration. A hint of creativity may return. You might pick up a guitar, reorganize your silverware drawer, or solve a problem that's been nagging at you for some time. Let's talk sleep on day five. The fear of putting your head on the pillow is softening. Day six, hangover-free mornings are the best. Confidence is building, and whatever you have on the calendar that day, you know you can manage because you'll have energy. Those heavy dark areas under the eyes are beginning to fade. Things are clearing up for you. Inflammation in the body is residing, and you may even begin to lose weight. Now, side note listeners with weight. Some may gain weight when they quit drinking, and some may lose weight when they quit drinking. It's different for everybody, and there are more important things in life than ruminating over weight. A better way to say this is your body will begin marching towards your ideal weight. The body has fully given up its search of alcohol and is now relying on your diet for nutritional needs. Let's talk cravings day six. They should lessen, but you will have them. And ice cream, yes, is still your friend, your best friend. Day seven. Ah, a good night's rest. Now on day seven, cellular restoration is in full swing. This is the day the body should start cueing regular dopamine release from healthier activities. The gut biome should begin to come back online, which then cues the production of serotonin, which is mostly created in the stomach. You say to yourself, what's up world? I'm about to log seven days alcohol-free, hells to the yes. Shame and guilt on day seven are at an all-time low. Mental clarity is returning, and physically, you may have just run the fastest mile in a long time. Cravings, ice cream is still your friend. Worry about sugar later. Another thing to mention is on day seven, your life should be settling down, getting calmer, getting easier, as in you're not worrying about drunken text messages or you didn't get a DUI in the past seven days, and you should probably have an extra at least 50 to 100 bucks in your pocket. Okay, let's talk strategy to this. When to start the seven-day alcohol fast? I would recommend taking Friday off work and make that Thursday night before that Friday your last drink. 
Then Monday, the normal work day, is going to be day four. Yes, that work day and week might be extra challenging, cue emotions, but you won't physically feel like dog garbage. You're not going to be withdrawing at work. Or listeners, another outcome of this is this could be the best work of your life, especially if your work requires physical labor. Here's some more pointers with the seven-day alcohol-free fast. Number one, drink a shit ton of water, lots of it. Try to do like a gallon a day. Number two, exercise at least 20 minutes a day. This cues endorphins, which masks physical and emotional pain, and studies shows that 20 minutes daily of exercise dramatically helps with sleep. It's better to do this exercise earlier in the day as well. All right, eat at least one healthy meal a day with a lot of greens. Next tip, pen and paper. Write about your experience and what you're feeling. Another thing, remember it's just a week. It's not forever. Okay, so one week without alcohol. What next? You may have told yourself, I'm getting shit-faced on the eighth day. That's fine. But a common thing I hear is once people reach that milestone, they keep going. In January of 2010, I told myself I'm going 30 days without alcohol. At day 30, I had already witnessed such profound change in my life that I decided to keep going. This change was both physical and mental. The pink cloud can start to roll in around the 7 to 30 day mark. Now, what is the pink cloud? Science shows it's when flying unicorns shake their wings when flying overhead. I'm kidding. The pink cloud is when your body, mind, and soul say, finally, this shit alcohol is gone. Now, the pink cloud isn't guaranteed, but it's commonly reported that when people quit drinking, the universe rewards them with a kick-ass 6 to 12 months. One more thing I want to mention before we conclude. Seven days is just the start of the restoration healing process. I do a video on PAWS, P-A-W-S, post-acute withdrawal symptoms that can last anywhere from three to six months. Now, there's a link to this video in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. Listeners, your seven days await. Go and get it. All right, and now let's hear from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Megan. Life can be overwhelming, and many people are burned out without even knowing it. Some symptoms of burnout can include lack of motivation, fatigue, irritability, and more. For me, recovery takes a lot of work, and when I try to do too much at once while also trying to just live my life, I step into the zone of burnout. When we get sober, we want to change many things about our lives, and that's inspiring. However, remember that slow and steady wins the race. If we come out of the gates too intensely, we may burn out. BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life and how you can best navigate it. My therapist has been instrumental in reminding me that I can do it all, but I can't do it all at the same time. Having her perspective has allowed me to be more accountable to myself. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com elevator. That's betterhelp.com elevator. Paul, thanks for the intro and recovery elevator. Please help me welcome Megan. Megan, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well. It's summer in North Dakota, so I'm okay. Uh, 
can you let listeners know how long you've been sober? Sure. I have been sober um, since June 23rd, 2021. My last drink was on June 22nd, 2021. So just we're, when we're recording this, you're like a year and three weeks. How are you feeling? That's amazing. Yeah, I feel really good. I knew you were going to ask me that. So I was thinking to myself, how do I feel? For the most part, I feel really good. I'm really, really proud of myself. Obviously, if you, as you know, it takes a while to get there. Lots of days, day ones. I'm just trying to stay focused on today and not be too worried about the future. So I feel good. I think that's a excellent approach and big congratulations to you, Thank uh, you. On, on a year and some change. That's absolutely amazing. So nice job, Megan. Thank you. Before we get into it, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you live, what you do for a living, the whole rigmarole, and don't forget the most important thing. What do you like to do for fun? Sure. I'm 34. I live in Orlando, Florida. I actually am from Detroit, though. I grew up in the Midwest um, and moved here about three years ago. I have two kids who are eight and four. I share them with their dad. I am a social worker. So right now I'm working for the health department. Uh, but before then, I was working in a men's prison. And that's actually a real big part of my recovery story. I'm getting my master's in criminal justice. So I do school, work, stay sober, deal with my kids. For fun, I love to travel. I just hit, I think, my 25th country this year. Oh, my gosh. And yeah, it's, it's uh, I love to travel. It's a huge part of my life. And since we live in the theme park capital of the world, I do a lot of theme parks like to go to the beach, like to work out. And I love music, theater, drama, that kind of stuff. Awesome. 25 countries. It's bananas. That's super, super <laughs> cool. Do you have a, is there like a, a clear favorite? Probably Poland. That's where my family's from. I've been there five times. Uh, try to go back as much as I can. Really love it there. It's cheap. It's beautiful. It's relatively safe. So I like going there when I can. That's amazing. Thanks. Very cool. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's do what we came here to do. Let's talk about some booze. Sure. Uh, <laughs> um, let's start off with uh, maybe your, your introduction to alcohol and, and yeah, we'll just go through the timeline of, of where it took you, how you felt along the way and let's get into it. Sounds good. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, somebody was on the podcast. I think they were being interviewed by Paul and they mentioned that their story kind of began before they were born. And that really resonated with me because I feel like that's true for everyone, but especially true for people who struggle with addiction. And I grew up in a really conservative religious home and there was no alcohol in my home at all. Um, and this is because my grandfather on my dad's side was a recovering alcoholic. So he had been an alcoholic for 40 years. And my dad grew up with an alcoholic father and grew up in that whole world of the, the cycles that come with that. My ancestry is from Eastern Europe, and that's a big part of Eastern European culture is unfortunately alcoholism and my family was no exception. And I'm a really big believer in generational trauma. And I 
that definitely was passed down throughout the generations um, and became kind of a tradition on that side of the family. So growing up, my parents were trying very hard to protect me, I think, from that. They were really worried about myself or one of my sisters. I had three younger sisters um, becoming an alcoholic. And so I never saw my dad drink um, his entire life. And he unfortunately passed when I was 15. And basically my childhood ended when he passed away. And that was also the year that I took my first drink. I remember it very clearly. I also remember not getting drunk and not drinking that much. And throughout high school, it was kind of a binge drinking type of situation. With the exception of, I have very clear, vivid memories of taking alcohol to school in 11th grade. And remember thinking it was not that big of a deal, just a little bit, just a little bit of alcohol for a 16 year old in the Midwest (laughs) going to high school. Totally normal. It's fine. (laughs) Um, Totally fine. Not a big deal. I'm totally fine. I'm fine. Fine. I have it all under control as we all have said so many times. So it kind of like fluctuated throughout high school and it fluctuated a little bit into college while preparing for this interview, though, I was reminded, remember that time you got alcohol poisoning at 20 and your friends were really scared and freaked out? Oh, yeah. Totally forgot about that, too. Totally not normal uh, behavior as well. But I'm fine. I have it under control. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah. yeah. So it fluctuated off and on. And I remember it being very scary for my friends and for people that I was around But I always thought it was okay because it wasn't every day. It wasn't even every week. So this is normal. This is what high schoolers do in the United States. Mm -hmm. So you're fine. And then when I uh, did take my first trip to Poland, I was 19 and I stayed there for three months and studied there. It was an amazing experience. Totally changed my life. But unfortunately, I got really big into the drinking culture there. And it probably catapulted me into the rest of my alcohol journey, unfortunately, at that time. Just take a look at, I, I'm sorry for the, the passing of your dad at, at a young age. I don't think that's easy at any age, but especially during those years, I think it's presents some unique troubles. And especially, yeah. you know, you had said that it was, I don't want to say crammed down your throat. Maybe it was crammed down your throat, but like <laughs> no drinking, no drinking. And then that, you know, I mean, it clear, clearly had an effect on you if it that was could have been maybe would you call it like a gateway into experimenting or trying? I think so. I think that's a really good way to explain it. It definitely was crammed down my throat. There was no talk of maybe one day you'll be able to drink as an adult and moderate. It was if you touch alcohol, you will become an alcoholic and you will ruin your life. And um, I didn't think that would happen to me, but here we are. So, yeah, I think I was curious about it, too. Like, what's what do you mean? Like, what is that really going to happen? Like, mm. that can't be true. Like, so it, yeah. it was <laughs> I th- <laughs> it's true. I think there's something about adolescence and, and being young where we we think we're 10 foot tall and, and bulletproof and. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, go ahead and tell me, and I'm going right. to show you. I'm going to show you otherwise. And, and it's so classic, and it makes me scared as a parent. That's part of what I try to focus on is just staying in today. 
but I really do worry about my kids in the future. And I'm exploring how to talk about that, manage it and, and not, not do it in the same way that my parents did. I feel you there. We've got, I've got two kids as well. So that's a, it's always in the back of my mind. Right. Um, so with, with your uh, usage leading up to the Poland trip and, and then maybe as it, as it shifted your behavior, your drinking behavior shifted when you got to Poland, I'm curious as to, you know, you said it wasn't, it wasn't all the time. It, it probably could have fell within the category of just normal adolescent experimentation and drinking during that time. Did it feel like normal experimentation or had you noticed that you were using it as a, as a coping mechanism? Was there differences between your drinking and, and that of, of your peers either that you recognized then or, or maybe have recognized reflecting back on it? Reflecting back on it, I totally have a different perspective now than I did as a kid. I'm not sure I was using it to cope then. I think it was coming out kind of as coping though, because I would get very, very drunk, very quickly, cry a lot, talk about my dad a lot. Uh, and make really stupid decisions and drink to an extent that nobody else was drinking, especially girls, 19, 20 year old girls were not drinking the amount that I was drinking. That's a good, that's a good question. So in, in Poland, you said you, you ramped up. Let's, uh, let's keep going. Yeah. What, what did it look like there? And uh, how did, how did the <laughs> progression continue to happen? It looked like a shit show there, to be completely honest. Um, but I was kind of able to get it under control when I came home and started growing up, graduating college, like thinking about my future a little bit more. At 21, I ended up meeting my husband at the time and got it under control for the most part. There were a few binges here or there, but it was not looking, looking like it was going in a bad direction in any way, shape or form. I got married really, really young and I want to protect his privacy, but our marriage is a big part of my story. So I'll, I'll do the best that I can. Um, when we got married, we were 23 and that was kind of normal in our culture, our, um, evangelical conservative religious culture. So we got married really young and there was a lot of stress in our marriage and I think early on, I realized this was a mistake. And that is when I began to use alcohol as a coping mechanism. And it ramped up quickly. It went from like a two out of a 10 to an 11 out of a 10 really, really quickly. Drinking alone, hiding drinks, really, really bad behavior while drinking. A lot of struggles really early on for a 23, 24 year old trying to manage adulthood for the first time. I had a really stressful job as a social worker and he was going under a lot of stress with his career and education. And I used alcohol to cope simple as that, uh, to make me feel better, to make me feel more mature, to make me feel like I could handle this new responsibility of being a wife and being, um, a grown up for the first time really in my yeah. entire life. I always like to ask along, like along, along the way, were there consequences, whether, I mean, not just legal things, but just emotionally with how you were feeling, uh, consequences in the relationship. And, and if there were, 
what did your response look like at the, at, at that time? Really bad relationship consequences. Thankfully, I, I have never had any legal issues. I should have, but I was able to avoid it the entire time. But our relationship was fractured immediately as a result. He couldn't trust me. I would show up to marriage counseling, already been drinking. And it was just not a good situation. And it was not a great foundation to a marriage. It takes two to tango, obviously. So it's not, you know, I don't want to put any complete blame on me, but it definitely influenced the trajectory of the rest of our relationship. But then for some wonderful reason, we decided to get pregnant and we were able to get pregnant really easily. And I was able to stop drinking during my pregnancy and kind of get it under control for the next couple of years until I didn't, till it wasn't in control. And then before my son was born and my son is almost five, things started to ramp up, I think, to what was the end of my drinking career. My marriage was falling apart from the moment that it started. And I was very lonely. I was really isolated. And I was the only one kind of taking any responsibility for our marriage. And I, just like I said, I just chose alcohol to cope. It made me feel better. It made the day go by faster. I was a stay-at-home mom for a really long time and I hated it. And I was doing it to help my marriage and help my family. And, and I, I'm not the type of person that can do that. That's I commend stay-at-home moms. I think it's great. I think it works really well, but I need structure. And I wasn't emotionally mature enough to create my own structure. I needed somebody else to do it for me, like a job. At that time, we decided to move to Florida. So things were really ramping up. I was really anxious about moving. I wanted to move, but also I was leaving behind everything I knew. My family, friends, my community, a place that I'd grown up my entire life for the middle of nowhere, central Florida. (laughs) But it feels like the middle of nowhere to me. But we thought it would be a good situation for our family. And immediately when we got here, it was like the the straw that broke the camel's back. And my drinking ramped up to an extreme that it had never been before. And my marriage completely fell apart. He wasn't around at all, wasn't interested in me, wasn't interested in our kids, wasn't interested in, in having that family life got really excited about living in a place that's fun and and it's a party all the time. And he knew that I couldn't go out and have fun and party all the time because I'm an alcoholic. But I was still in really deep denial. Oh, it'll be okay. Oh, it's not early in the morning. It's every day now, but it's not like before noon until it was before noon. And then it was, you know, all the time around the clock. And like a lot of people say, it it ramped up when the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. The pandemic was really hard on people who struggle with alcohol. And uh, I was no exception. I had nowhere to go, nowhere to be. And I, uh, well, might as well start drinking. That'll make yeah. you know the day go by faster and make the news a little less scary and make life a little more manageable until it became completely out of control, just out of control. Let's dig into, into that a little bit. It's what did your drinking behavior look like? Like maybe like Like, from, from early motherhood, like, and then into like pandemic time, 
what yeah you know were you drinking home alone did you have peers that you were doing it with was it strictly alone what what did that be drinking behavior look like for you it looked like drinking alone like alone on my couch at 9 10 11 o'clock at night because my husband wasn't home because he was either at work or out with his friends or asleep he wasn't interested in spending time with me so i'm going to make things better and drink at home and i have kids so i can't leave so i'm just going to drink at home and when they started doing alcohol delivery services i don't have i don't ever have to leave all i have to do is order it and it'll come to my house within an hour. So I, we would go, I would go out once in a while and drink, but only like one or two drinks because I have to drive. So people weren't really aware of the extent that that was going on. Very few people knew, I, but I didn't have anything to hide. There's nothing to hide. This is totally normal behavior, except yeah. it wasn't <laughs> at all. Yeah. When we, when we keep it under wraps, it's, yeah, it's really easy for people to not, I don't know, to, to not believe that we have an issue if they, if they, right. if they don't see it. I feel like, you know, for me, uh, there's different times in my relationship where my alcohol, it took, it went too far. I mean, it, that happened right. a lot, but there's a couple of times where that happened and I got, you know, like quote unquote in trouble with my spouse. And, right. and I learned from that early on. That's just the way that, that my brain works as an alcoholic and that just the person that I am is like, Oh, like if you go, if you go too far, you're going to get in trouble. So rather than taper back, I learned to protect my, my drinking versus adjust it. Yes. Yeah. That's a really good way to put it. And unfortunately I was enabled a lot in it. He knew it would make me happy. So he would provide it for me and then be confused as to why I got drunk uh, or would take me out with friends and be confused why I embarrassed him because I'm an alcoholic. I can't be around alcohol at that time. It just doesn't work. There's no such thing as moderating for me. And it just, it escalated up until, until the pandemic and the pandemic kind of pushed it over the edge, I'd say. So at that, so that would be when the hell was a pandemic 15 years ago? It started, I think uh, uh, 2020, 2020, uh, like late spring, 2020, early summer, my ex and I decided to separate. I, at that time was in very deep denial and he had offered for me to go to rehab. And I was like, I'm not going to rehab. That's super embarrassing. I'm not going to admit that I have a problem because years ago I had gone to a rehabilitation center for an eating disorder and there, we could talk for hours about eating disorders and alcoholism, but I had this image in my head that it was going to be like that, but I had been a kid at that time. So you have different rights as a kid and as an adult, I was really worried about leaving my kids and knew that I mean, my marriage was going to completely fall apart if I left. So we tried the separation thing. It was really nice living alone. I could drink as much as I wanted. So I think he thought I would get it under control if I was by myself. Not so that didn't work at all. It, 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 it was a great opportunity to literally drink all day. Oh, and wow. I started to get really physically sick. I felt, I mean, even thinking about it now, I want to vomit how much I was drinking and how much I horrible. I felt just awful, but eventually he did come to me and said he wanted a divorce 
And I begged and begged and begged and said, I'll go to rehab. So I finally got on a plane and went to rehab. And I went out west to a really great place, loved rehab, recommend it to everyone, would love to go back if I had a reason to. Um, But it was a break. It was a break from the stress of my marriage, the stress of drinking. I had most of the child responsibilities, the house responsibilities. So I could finally breathe. Like, okay, let me, let me look at my life. Let me look at what's going on and, and maybe I can fix this. But I got really focused on what was going on at home and I wasn't focusing on my, on myself on why I was there. I was relieved to be sober. It felt great. So happy to be sober really was on fire for alcohol, for being alcohol free, but I wasn't addressing the issues at all. And halfway through there, he said, he really wants a divorce. He does not want to be married to me. He doesn't love me anymore. And the rest of the time there was kind of just not well spent. It was focusing on him, focusing on other things and not focusing on why I spent two months of my life in the middle of nowhere to work on myself. So I came home and I blew my life up, literally in and out of detox, in and out of the hospital, had to go back to rehab for 10 days. I think I spent six or seven ER stays, racked up my medical bills, destroyed any hope of reconciling with my husband and almost lost my kids um, because I was just such a mess. And that is the one point in my life that I can say, you were using this to cope. You were not using it for fun. There was no hint of fun or enjoyment in this. You were miserable. And I was. Just totally numbing out. Yep. Totally numb. And the physical symptoms were just awful. Puking, weight gain, incredible nausea. Just, I should have died. I, it's a miracle that I I didn't kill myself, but throughout this whole time, I knew I needed to get a job because I needed health insurance. Um, I was in no way, shape or form capable to get a job, but my stubborn self, well, I can manage this and get a job and get sober and deal with my kids and live on my own for the first time. It'll be totally fine. You've got this. (laughs) So I got hired by the state of Florida to work in a men's prison. And I started working there in February, 2021, and it changed my life. If you are trying to get sober, I always say giving back is the best way to start that process. I saw men who had sentences for life. I saw men who were separated from their families, men who suffered severe abuse, trauma, and addiction. And eventually I realized you can help them by sharing your own story and explaining to them that you're just like them. Just because you look like this pretty little white girl from the middle of nowhere, Michigan, you, you can make a difference in this. And it really encouraged me and inspired me to help them and share what I was learning because I was literally getting sober while I was telling them, stay away from drugs and alcohol because it'll <laughs> your life. And I eventually came out and said, because I'm an alcoholic, I'm struggling and I want to share what's worked for me, for you. And it was able to click. I started getting obsessed with helping them and obsessed with taking care of myself. 
I did all the oils and the supplements and the detox things and uh, spoiled myself. I got great sleep. I would go get facials. I started working out and all those natural endorphins started kicking in. And finally, my brain was starting to heal. And I tell people it takes like five to 10 days for your brain to start to heal. And then it takes, you know, 30, 30 plus as well. But I realized, okay, you don't want to live this way. You're miserable. You destroyed your life. You're not going to be able to be a great parent. You have this great job. It's time to stop. Time to choose to take care of yourself and take care of you. Yeah. And June 22nd, 21 was the last day that I picked up a drink. Mm-hmm. And no looking back now. That's awesome. You said you started that job in February? February 2021. So like four months into it. Yeah, and, and four months been- into it. Finally stopped showing up hungover, slightly <laughs> drunk, and finally was able to, you know, make a difference and, and make a difference for myself, really. Just, I felt so good. I still feel so good. Yeah. still feels amazing to wake up and not be hungover and not be puking and, and not feel like absolute garbage. I love that you said that sharing your experience with them was making a difference in their lives. And I just like, I, I really want listeners to like, take note of that. You know, you started still drinking four months in you've, you know, you stopped and haven't picked, picked back up and you were able to contribute to other people's lives. I think there's this preconceived notion. And, and I know that I had it that like, that, I, that I didn't have value that I couldn't contribute that I, I didn't have anything to offer as a new person in sobriety or recovery. And that's, it's just total BS. I think no matter where, no matter where we are in this journey, just the fact that we're in it. And if we're communicating that with other people that we're in it and like, we get it. Like I, I understand your struggle because I, I share that with you. It, It can be that simple and that can make a difference in someone's life. It is. And it's really important if you're doing well and you have learned, you know, what works to share it with others. Don't keep it to yourself. And I see a lot, or I saw a lot of addiction and a lot of mental health problems in the prison and no one was helping. There are no drug programs, at least at this particular prison and the drug use and, and the alcohol use is out of control. And I wanted them to recognize that Sobriety is a wonderful, it's a wonderful way to live. And there's so much freedom in that. Even if you don't have your physical freedom because you're incarcerated, there's freedom in yourself. I feel the same way. And I I don't know how much of an impact I made. I I think a a decent amount. I mean, everybody has to choose for themselves if they will choose themselves and choose sobriety. But it was an amazing experience, one that I will never forget. And I credit all these men with helping me get sober. That's really cool. Let's talk about like leading up to that June date. Was there, was there any like one particular moment that was, was the tipping point or was it a accumulation? Was it cumulative? Yeah, there were, I had really long stretches. I remember posting in the Cafe RE group. I did 45 days. I did 50 days. I think, I think 45, 50 days was my longest. And I know I actually, I think it was closer to 60 days um, from April, 
April was the last time I made like a really complete fool out of myself um, to my ex-husband and his family and had to miss picking up my kids because I was too drunk. But from April to June, I did decently well. And I just getting over my marriage was hard. It was the hardest thing that I ever had to do while getting sober um, in a new state where I didn't know anybody and was working for the first time in five years after being a stay-at-home mom. And I just let myself kind of choose instead of coping in the correct way and the most beneficial way. Oh, just go back to alcohol. It's, it's just going to make you feel better. You're so depressed. You're miserable. Even though my job was going great, my personal life was a mess because I was devastated. I lost my family. I lost what I thought my future was going to be. And so I'll just, just drink tonight, you'll feel better. And, and, you know, you won't have to think about how awful you feel. And eventually I had to just say, you're, you're done. You feel miserable. You can't keep living this way. And you're not going to be able to be a good parent for your kids. And you may lose your kids. I wish it was that easy. (laughs) It's just saying, oh, oh, (laughs) never mind. You're never going to drink ever again. Um, But as time went on, it, it did get easier. Obviously, the first month is the hardest, but I kept meeting these goals over the over the year. I traveled for the first time sober by myself in November, and I was really worried. Uh, I was like, you know, you're in Europe again. This is a, a trigger for you. And I did it. I did a whole week by myself, no accountability, which I don't recommend. I mean, it's always good to have accountability, but if you don't know anybody in that country, it's a little difficult. And I did it. And then I went through the holidays and then, you know, went into the spring and did another solo trip and stayed sober and then then hit a year. And it was like it went by like nothing almost. Yeah, I think there's days where like that whatever time we have, can it can feel like five minutes or it can feel like right. five years, too. Right. So in the last in the last year and, and leading up even leading up to that date uh, uh, of your last drink, what sort of um, what sort of tools have you used as far as is whether it be books, literature, programs, communities, anything like that? What what sorts what sorts of things did you lean into to to help yeah. you be successful? A lot of it was like I said, like the self care really taking care of myself for the first time in my life. Um, I didn't have my kids all the time, so I was able to sleep. I was able to do little things for myself. Um, I trained for a half marathon. I ran a half marathon in January. Um, That helped a lot. I don't love exercise, but it helps so much just getting your brain on track. Um, Cafe RE, checking in as much as possible, Um, going to meetings with Cafe RE, Having an accountability partner helped a lot. Um, I still talk to her often and we keep each other accountable. Just focusing on the good in sobriety, focusing on how good I feel. And you want to keep this way. You want to feel this way. Um, I have great friends that have uh, been really helpful to me. Um, I unfortunately don't have a lot of family support. They were not happy with the way that I chose to get sober and uh, they're not in my life now at this point. So I had to really lean in on family and uh, I mean, on friends lean in on friends because I didn't have that family support Mm -hmm. and just focusing on my goals too. 
I want to be able to travel. I want to be able to go to different countries alone and feel safe and secure and not have to worry about my behavior while I'm drinking. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to South America in May alone and I was safe, but I can't imagine how unsafe in this particular country and where I was while drinking, it would not have been a good look. It would not have gone well for me. And just focusing on the good and focusing on what I want to accomplish. Uh, I speak a lot about it on social media. If I can mention that I have um, an Instagram account that I've kind of switched over to sobriety, uh, talking a lot about my journey and what worked for me because social media is, can be really awful, but it can be really, really helpful and make you feel less alone. There are people all over the world that are struggling to get sober or are living in sobriety. And it's really interesting to see other people's stories too and connect with them. Yeah. It's, it's cool. The, I don't know. It's like, there's a movement. Like I'll be thumbing through, like trying to like trying to numb out at night, look at cat videos and like more, which are amazing. But But sobriety videos are great too. Yeah. It's, it's so cool to see so many faces and it's like people that I, that I don't necessarily know or hadn't heard of and, right. and they're in this space creating content. And it's, it's not just about like the fun entertainment, but the, like there's that as well. But uh, I, I think you nailed it when you, when you said it, it's people just sharing what they've been through, sharing their journey, whether it's the day to day or, or how they've overcome stuff in their past. It's a, a great avenue for like some digestible content just to to motivate you or encourage you. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, Digestible content is a really good way to put it because it's quick. We live in a society where everything needs to be immediate. And if it works, it works. It helps me in my sobriety. And one of my favorite sober lit type quotes is I recover out loud. So other people don't have to suffer in silence. And I suffered in silence for a really long time. And if I can help just a couple people, one person, even, you know, it's worth it. And I have people that will message me and say, you've inspired me and you've encouraged me and thank you for sharing. And I don't want to live fake anymore. I don't want to live in this hungover bubble that I just keep to myself and don't share what I've learned because Honestly, it sounds so cheesy, but I feel like God has given me a second chance at life. I have a whole new life ahead of me and I get to be alcohol free and it's scary, sucks a lot of the time, but the benefits totally outweigh the cons. Yeah. I think that's, I think it's beautiful to just to give back. And I, I think a lot of us see this, this shift where like what we what we focus on and where our attention is drawn and, and where we want to put our energy, it moves to something that's, that's bigger than us. I think that's, I think that's normal. And I think that's a, a positive thing because yes. we know, we know what it was like to be in that alone. And I just like, we don't, we don't want that for anybody else. And I think that's so commendable to, to step up and, and say, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to put something out there to help other yeah. people out. Thank you. It's just so normalized in our culture too. And that one of the books that helped me a lot is quit like a woman, like a lot of people talk about, and it really opened my eyes to see how dangerous alcohol is 
and how it's so seeped in our culture, especially the mommyhood wine culture and parenthood wine culture. You don't need alcohol to parent. It doesn't make things easier. Um, you don't need alcohol to feel better about yourself, to look sexier. You don't need alcohol to have something to do. Mm. That's a really big, big issue with especially people my age, millennials and people in their early 20s, early 30s, late 30s. Even it, it's not that much fun to go out and just waste your money and, and get hungover. Sounds pretty miserable to yeah. me now at this point. So fortunately, I live in an, an area where there is a lot to do. So I feel I feel for people who don't because it can be hard to find some things to do that are alcohol free. Yeah, it it is. I think it it can be a challenge. But, you know, you've said it a couple of times already. Uh, focus on the good. And I think if we I think if we can do that in our sobriety and our recovery, for me, that's that's been a key to the longevity of my of, of my sobriety is focusing on the good. And I think that's such great advice. There's, there's something about like the fear of relapse and the fear of consequences that is, I mean, that'll, that'll, that'll get us there for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that's, it's not for nothing, No, but I know for me, there was a shift when, when my attention was diverted from that fear to a love for the life that I have now. And wanting to nurture that, my sponsor always says, like, we care for our sobriety like a baby and we just love on it. Yeah. And I think yeah, I like that. I'm caring for it like a baby. I like the saying, like, your addiction is doing push-ups in the parking lot. You know, it's always going to be waiting for you. But if you care and nurture for yourself and for your brain and what keeps you sober, you'll, you'll stay there for sure. If people wanted to find you on social media, do you want to, do you want to share? Sure. I would love to share. So it's magical, sober mama, magical, sober mama, M-A-M-A. -M -A. And I'd be happy for people to follow me and connect and help build my sobriety network as well. I like to follow people who have similar lifestyles and goals as me. Awesome. And we'll, uh, we'll put that in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. And yeah, listeners, if you haven't, if you haven't checked out like the recovery space on, on social media, like check it out. Use it. I think so many of us feel inundated by like the shit that's out there, <laughs> whether, whether it's the comparison <laughs> game or the like hatred scrolling of oh this guy's full of crap or nobody really does this. That's not real life. Like there's some really cool stuff out there. So you just have to wade through the shit and you'll, and you'll find some. <laughs> Yes, we are. Can't believe it. I don't know where the time went, but we are at the rapid fire round. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> okay. In 30 to 60 seconds. Uh, number one, what was your biggest fear as you were thinking about quitting drinking? That I'd have to sit with myself, that I'd have to sit and think about my feelings, that I'd have to process things like a sober person has to do i don't want to spoil it for anybody but did that fear come true it did uh, yeah i had to sit with a lot of a lot of stuff and that's made me a stronger and better and healthier person though as a result Heck yes uh number two what is a positive that you didn't expect in in your life without alcohol my anxiety has improved 
tenfold. I am an anxious person. I've struggled with anxiety since I was very young, but there are days when it's a two instead of where I was always at a 10, always at a 10, because that's what alcohol will do. It increases your anxiety. And then it also tells you, hey, there's this thing, there's this thing you can do to fix that anxiety. <laughs> Keep drinking. Yeah, it's also gonna make it way worse, but. Right. This <laughs> is fun. Uh, that was sarcasm, folks. Uh, number three, what is your go-to alcohol-free drink? Right. Those people who know me will kill me if I don't say Diet Coke because I drank an insane amount of Diet Coke. I will deal with it one day, but for, that day is not today. <laughs> and it's not tomorrow either. Um, but I've really started to love kombucha too. And I know that's not everybody's AF drink, but I love kombucha. It is so delicious and so sweet and just gives you that like, oomph, that's it's not Diet Coke, it's not water. It's just like some soul. Within the last, I don't know, three months, I've gotten to the point where I can tolerate kombucha. Probably. It's, it's a fire taste. It's yeah. Required. I don't have a lot of it, but I can... It doesn't feel like I'm like my mouth is being assaulted anymore. <laughs> it's, to, it's tolerable. I'm working on some gut health. Uh, number four, what is your plan in sobriety moving forward? I need to get back into therapy. I need to get a therapist and just stay on top of it. It's something that I've been neglecting. I'm not going to lie. I think everyone should be in therapy. It's just as difficult to get into, at least where I'm located. I don't have any excuses anymore because I work from home. So I need to, I, I don't work at the prison anymore. I work at home in my own home. That's what I mean. So I need to get into that and just stay accountable to myself. Number five, what is your favorite resource in recovery? It can be a book, an app, uh, a program, anything like that. Definitely Cafe RE. Uh, shout out to our Facebook group. Up. What up? What up? Up. Just knowing that there are other people out there who struggle on a day-to-day basis helps a lot. I have really good friends that I reach out to. Love the book, um, Quit Like a Woman, This Naked Mind. Um, and then obviously sobriety social media. Those, you know, checking out other people. Okay, this is why you're sober. This is why you're doing it. You know, it's hard sometimes, but staying focused um, on what is good and how great I feel. It's a great portfolio. Number six, what is a technique you use when you find yourself with a craving? I lean into the sugar. Is that the best (laughs) coping mechanism? We'll deal with it eventually. Shout out to Sour Patch Kids because they've kept me sober. Um, I really got into them when I was in rehab and the love is real. That sugar just literally distracts my brain. Um, And that's a lot of what cravings are. They're They're just a moment and you gotta just think about something else and lean into anything else and they pass. They're not as frequent anymore, but in the beginning, yeah, it was really hard. Yeah, sometimes it's just about that harm reduction and finding something to get us through it. Uh, And number seven, what parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are either in recovery or thinking about getting sober? If you're thinking about it, it is so worth it. It is the best thing that I have ever done for myself. I'm a completely different person, but also who I really am as a person who I've always been. 
Um, if you're struggling, reach out to somebody. Reach out to me on social media. I would be thrilled and honored to to help anybody along their journey. Um, but you're not alone. You are not the only person who is struggling. You're not the only person out there who desperately needs to quit the booze. And last, but certainly not least, can you give listeners your favorite, you might need to ditch the booze if line? You might need to ditch the booze if the hospital staff starts to recognize you because you've been in their ER one too many times and it's time to quit the booze so you don't have to keep coming back. <laughs> that could be an indicator. Did they have like a punch card or you get a free sandwich in the cafeteria? I was getting close to that for sure. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Might be time to stop, folks. Megan, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Thank uh, you. I, it was really I, fun. A really great tool for me. I appreciate it. I think you're going to help a lot of people. Listeners, be sure to check her out. Magical Sober Mama. Uh, thank you, sister. <laughs> thanks. Recovery Elevator, thanks for listening. And thank you, Megan, for coming on the show. You're going to help a lot of people today. On the tales of our Bozeman retreat, I wanted to confirm one thing to you guys. Together is always better. I'm grateful to have had the chance to attend again. I was able to reconnect with friends who met me during my first few weeks of sobriety and have been there through it all. I got to meet folks who I've known for years virtually, but we finally got to hang out in person. And I met a bunch of new beautiful humans who opened up and shared about their lives. Recovery people are the best, and I loved getting to see you all. We're the only ones who can do this, RE, but we don't have to do it alone. I love you guys.